Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Do not have communion, uh, do not have children's church. We do have communion on Communion Sunday, uh, but we don't have children's church. <clears throat> uh, so that will resume next week. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 15, we're just going to be looking at the uh, first few verses here, verses 1 through 6 of this uh, very important passage in God's holy word. You know, everybody is afraid of something. I went on uh, Google and typed in a list of phobias. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but um, there are uh, an enormous list of different kinds of things that people are afraid of, and some of them might surprise you. Uh, Anthrophobia is the fear of flowers. Does anybody have anthrophobia and any anthrophobic people in our congregation here today? Leukophobia, the fear of the color white. Francophobia, the fear of France. Phobophobia, the fear of fears. And yes, there is actually even something called homilophobia, the fear of sermons. Um, so hopefully nobody is homilophobic uh, this morning. Uh, these are listed as uh, real conditions that some people have. We kind of laugh at them. I, I don't think anybody probably is struggling with these, but there are certain phobias that we all have that maybe some of you do deal with, like acrophobia, the fear of heights, um, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, hemophobia, the fear of blood. There's something called coasterphobia, the fear of roller coasters, and that's me. I don't like roller coasters, scared to death of roller coasters. These are more understandable phobias, um, I guess. But, you know, there are also things that some of us are afraid of <clears throat> that we might not share, and maybe there's not even a word for it. I, I don't know, but fears that perhaps some of us all carry in our hearts with us, like the fear of not being good enough, the fear of being unloved and forgotten, the fear of dying, the fear of facing God one day. Have you ever experienced those fears? We are resuming our sermon series here in the book of Genesis. We're studying the life of Abraham. And in this passage today, we're going to find that Abraham is afraid. And so here's where we've been kind of so far in this study of Abraham, you might recall, starts back in chapter 12 where God comes to Abram, calls to him, tells Abram he's going to make his name great, he's going to make a great nation out of Abram, tells him to go to the promised land, and Abram does and makes it to the promised land. A famine comes, he goes down to Egypt and um, has some struggles there and ends up leaving Egypt, going back into the promised land, enters into a battle with these foreign kings, finds that his nephew Lot has been kidnapped by these kings. He attacks these foreign kings. He rescues his nephew Lot. Last week, then, we saw that Abram was blessed by the appearing of this mysterious figure, this man named Melchizedek, who came and blessed Abram and gave us a picture into the office of king and priest that belonged to Jesus Christ. And now here we are in chapter 15, and Abram is afraid. What do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when you're afraid, when you're overcome with fears for whatever it is? How do you approach that? What is your 
um, strategy, how do you deal with it, I think we're going to gain some help for how to deal with our fears, no matter how trivial or how big they might be as we look at this passage. So if you're able to stand, please do so, and I'll read here Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Holy Spirit, come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so what do you do when you're afraid? Three very simple things that come to us out of this text. The first is simply this. Tell God your fears. Tell God your fears. Let's look to the text. If you don't have a Bible with you, by the way, there is a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. This text is found on page 6, so you're welcome to grab that and follow along with us. So, Verse 1, chapter 15, the Lord comes to Abram. We see here God taking the initiative, pursuing Abram, and the command is given there in verse 1, fear not Abram. So the implication of this, of course, is that Abram must be fearful. Now, why is this interesting? Why is it perhaps perplexing to us that God would come to Abram and say, fear not. And I think the answer to that is because nowhere does it say that Abram is afraid. Nowhere since chapter 12, as we have been looking at his life, is there any indication that he's afraid of anything. We don't get any record of Abram saying, I'm afraid, nor does the narrator say Abram was afraid. But God comes to him and says, fear not. And what that tells us is that even though we haven't been told that Abram is afraid, God knows that Abram is afraid. God knows the heart of Abram. God knows your fears as well. You might have certain fears that you haven't shared with anybody. There might be nobody on earth that knows some of the things that you're worried about and fearful about, but you know what? God knows. He knows your heart. The Word tells us that before a word is even on our tongue, God knows it. And so there's just a, 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 just a, a picture into the tenderness and care of God that he knows Abram's fears, and he doesn't leave him in his fears, but he approaches Abram and seeks to help him deal with it. So what <clears throat> was it that Abram was afraid of? Well, um, it could be that Abram was afraid that these foreign kings that he just got into a battle with, were perhaps regrouping and getting ready to come back and attack Abram. This is what armies very often do. They lick their wounds, they regroup, and they come back. And that might be why God says to Abram, fear not, I am your shield. 
That word shield is used very frequently in the Old Testament for God's declaration that he is our protector. And he was Abram's protector. And he's saying to Abram, I'm going to protect you from any attack. Maybe that was one thing that Abram was afraid of. But God also says there in verse 1, I'm your, or, uh, your reward shall be very great. So maybe Abram's thinking, you know, God told me to go to the promised land and I've had all this trouble and I've had battles and wars and difficulties. Is this going to be worth it? <laughs> what is going to be come of all that I have been doing in obedience to God. And God says, reminding Abram, your reward's going to be great. You're going to get your reward, Abram. Don't fear. I'm your protector, and you're going to be rewarded. But then in verses 2 and 3, we see Abram, he's just very candid and very open and very honest, and he just tells God what his fears are. And he says this, verse 2, Abram says, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Remember, God said that he was going to have a descendant. He's going to have a son. You know what? That was 10 years ago at this point in the story. And what Abram was saying, God, you promised this, but I'm still childless. Where is this child you promised? Where is he? He goes on. He talks about there's this heir of my house named Eliezer of Damascus. Um, Apparently, Eliezer had been kind of hired. This is something that would happen in these cultures where you could hire what would be called kind of like an indirect heir. That is, you would hire someone to perform the duties of a son in exchange for the inheritance upon the death of a childless couple. And so it would seem that Abram and Sarah have made this arrangement with this Eliezer that he will be the heir. I mean, Abram's just thinking through this. God, you said you're going to give me a child. It's been 10 years. There is no child. I guess it's Eliezer. And what other conclusion can I draw? But then you get to verse 3 and you say, you see that Abram is actually really direct with God. Behold, you have given me no offspring. You're the problem here, God, it would seem to be what Abram is saying. You promised and you haven't come through. This is on you. This is your fault, God. You have not fulfilled your promise. This is what Abram's afraid of. God doesn't seem to be answering, doesn't seem to be doing what he promised he would do. And it should kind of startle us as we think about this carefully, about how direct and blunt Abram is with God. This is a prayer of complaint, we might say. He is complaining to God. Do you know that this can be an acceptable practice in your prayer life? That there are occasions when complaining to God is an acceptable thing to do. After all, Elijah did it, Job did it, David did it. Look at the Psalm 55. It says this, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. The psalmist complaining to God. You know, Jesus offered a complaint to God when he was hanging on the cross. And he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking onto his lips the 22nd Psalm. That's a psalm of lament, a psalm of complaint. So there are times when it is appropriate to complain. Now, there's a difference between a humble complaint and sinful grumbling. (laughs) That's true. The Scriptures warn us against sinful grumbling, just a a spirit of, of lack of trust and complaining and whininess and nothing ever goes right. We can very easily fall into a spirit of grumbling, but there is a humble complaint, a place for a humble complaint, and that would seem to be the case here. Abram is not rebuked for this complaint that he offers to God. 
So what is your fear? What is your complaint before God, friends, today? Maybe you're afraid of an exam that's coming up this week. Maybe you're afraid of losing your job. Maybe you're afraid of losing um, the closeness of a friend or a loved one. Maybe you're afraid of getting COVID. A lot of us live with that fear in this day and age. Are you telling God about that? Are you opening up your heart to God about that in a humble complaint and not sinful grumbling? The kind of complaining that you want to avoid is the complaining heart that never turns to God. There are some who are angry at God and they have chosen not to bring it to Him. They have chosen not to open their heart before God. That's a dangerous place to be. In the Bible, when we see complaints, they're directed toward God. There's frustration, there's disillusionment, there's sadness, but it's a frustration, a disillusionment, and a sadness that is brought before the Lord, and that's what Abram is doing here. Just like the hymn says, right? What peace we often forfeit, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So tell God your complaints. That's what Abram does. And that's the first step to dealing with your fears, opening up to God about this. The second thing is, how we deal with our fears is listen to what God says. Listen to what He says. It says twice in this passage that the word of the Lord came to Abram. You see it in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram, and you see it in verse 4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. In verse 1, it tells us the word came to Abram in a vision, so we're not told exactly what it was that Abram saw, but we know what he heard. The word came. God spoke to Abram. Now, you might hear that or read that and say to yourself, man, I sure wish God would speak to me. I sure wish the word of the Lord would come to me in the way it came to Abram, wouldn't that be awesome to hear the voice of God speaking through the clouds like a thunderous remark from on high? Wouldn't we all love to hear that? But, friends, let me tell you that the word of the Lord has come to you. The word of the Lord has come to you in the words of Scripture, in the Bible. Think about Abram's situation. The only time he heard from the word of the Lord is when God decided to speak. And that was not very frequent. And if God didn't decide to speak, Abram didn't hear from God. He was completely dependent on whenever God would decide to speak. But you and I hear the word whenever we read the Scriptures, whenever the Scriptures are read to you, whenever the Scriptures are preached to you, the word of the Lord is coming to you. The word of the Lord is coming to you at this very moment. You're hearing from God to the degree that what I am saying is in line with what the Scriptures are saying. So we shouldn't say, oh boy, wouldn't it be great if God spoke? I think it's better, actually, in the situation that we live in now, having the Scriptures before us, accessible to us whenever we want to hear from the Lord. This is what Thomas Watson says, read the Scripture not only as a, as a history, but as a love letter sent to you from God. So what is it that God says? What does he say when he speaks to Abram? And we see this in verse 4 as we pick up where this leaves off. God addresses the complaint that Abram has bought, brought to him. Verse 4, he says, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. So this is referring to what Abram said. I guess it's Eliezer, this kind of indirect hired heir. And God is saying, nope, that's not 
going to be the son that I have promised you. Instead, he says, your very own son will be your heir at the end of verse 4. Your very own son, Abram, even though, yes, you're about 85 years old now, and even though, yes, your wife is barren, the plan is still the same, God says. I haven't changed anything here. Very often we kind of wonder when we don't hear from God or when things don't change like we expect them to do. We wonder if things have changed. God is consistent. He is faithful. He doesn't change His plan. It's fixed, and He hasn't changed His plan in this case either. Still the plan, Abram, is that you're going to have a son, a real-life son that comes from you and your wife, and from this son is going to come a great nation, and from this great nation is going to come a great Savior, and from this great Savior, the entire world, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That's still the plan. So we can only imagine what Abram might have thought as he heard that, Uh, but God here through His Word is redirecting Abram's thinking about this situation along with God's promises. And then God goes on and he says something additional about his descendants, that is, Abram's descendants. He says the plan's going to be the same, you're going to have a son, and then it says in verse 5 that God takes Abram outside, and he has Abram look up into the sky to see all the stars. And he says this, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them, And then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Look at all the stars. They're they're more than you can count. They're more than you can even conceive. And yet that's how many descendants you're going to have, Abram. That's how many children, so to speak, that you're going to have. So it's not only that you're going to have one son. I mean, that's hard enough to believe. That's a miracle in its own. But now God is saying you're going to have descendants that are more than what you can see in the sky when you look at the stars. This goes back to chapter 13, verse 16, you might remember, where God said something similar to Abram, where he told him that your descendants are going to be more numerous than the dust of the earth. And it's like what God is saying to Abram, it's like if you're walking along a path and you're looking down, you're reminded of how many descendants you're going to have. And if you decide to look up into the sky, you're going to be reminded of how many descendants you're going to have. The reminders of God's promises are everywhere, and the descendants coming from you are going to be multiple. They're going to be numerous. They're going to be just an amazing number beyond what you can ever conceive of. Now, what could Abram have been thinking about this? How would he be processing this? You know, maybe some of you have seen that reality TV show the, uh, the, about the Duggars, 19 and counting. Um, I guess the show first was 17 and counting, and then they had another child, and it was 18 and counting, and now it's gotten up to 19 and counting. I, I guess the show isn't on anymore, but 19 kids, you know? I mean, that's a lot of children, right? <laughs> that's a lot of kids. And yet, what God is saying to Abram is, 19 is nothing compared to the descendants you're going to have. Your descendants are going to be more than the stars in the sky, more than the dust on the ground. Now, how... Do we account for this? What, what is being said here? How do we explain the great number of descendants that are being promised here? And I, I think the way we have to consider this is by looking into the New Testament. And the New Testament would tell us that the descendants of Abraham are not to be considered merely physical descendants, but spiritual. And so I've shown you this a couple times in this series, a very important verse in Galatians 3, where it says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. 
then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So the ultimate fulfillment of what God is promising here to Abram in chapter 15 is when people like you and I come to believe in Jesus and identify with Christ and become Christians. All throughout the history of the church since Jesus came and was resurrected from the dead and the gospel has been going forth and people have been believing in all parts of the world, anybody, anywhere, at any time, believing in Jesus Christ is a descendant of Abraham. And so now you get the idea about how we can consider that there might be this enormous number of people who believe in Jesus. But this is something we should remember, friends, and, and keep in mind, particularly as we look at the way our world tends to be going, because perhaps this is a fear of yours, and that is that you look at the culture that we live in, and you see how tense things are, and you see how uh, the church seems to be marginalized, and how Christians seem to be neglected, and how the gospel seems to not have relevance, maybe, and you look at the world and you think, are we losing? I mean, is the church going to win? Are we going to shut our doors one day and just wave the white flag and give up? I mean, do you ever take that kind of perspective? You get discouraged. You get kind of cynical when you look out in the world, don't you? And sometimes maybe you're afraid. I, I think we might be losing here. Whenever you start to feel that way, you go back to this promise to Abram. Remember what God is promising here. His descendants, Christians, believers, more than the stars in the sky, more than the dust on the ground. Friends, we are not losing. The gospel is not losing. The kingdom is not losing. Jesus is not losing. This promise will be fulfilled. The earth will be filled with people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the promise. And it might seem to you unbelievable right now. How can that be? The number of Christians is shrinking. I see churches shutting their doors all the time. How can this possibly be? Well, let's not think of this just entirely regarding what's happening in the United States, right, when we think about the growth of the church. The church is growing in many parts of the world, even though it might not be growing here. But nonetheless, this is the essence of the Christian life, living by faith in what God has told us, just like Abraham had to. God came to Abram, you're going to have a child, you're 85 years old, it must have just seemed impossible, but the expectation is that Abram would believe. And God comes and says to you and me right now, your culture looks like it's falling apart, it looks like everything is going down the drain, and yet what I'm telling you is that the descendants of Abraham, believers in Jesus, are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Believe that, friends. I mean, let's look to the future and let's look to the project of the Great Commission with optimism and hope because God is going to do what He says He will do. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. I see no reason, he says, why we should not have a greater Pentecost than Peter saw, and a Reformation deeper in its foundations than all the reforms which Luther and Calvin achieved. I mean, have you ever thought about that? You know, we look back at Pentecost, we look back at the Reformation, and we just think, well, they were these great times, but do we ever expect that maybe revivals like that could happen again, that maybe there could be revivals even greater than that in our future? We have the same Christ. Remember that. You know, Jesus hasn't changed. The gospel must succeed. It shall succeed. It cannot be prevented from succeeding. A multitude that no man can number must be saved. And Spurgeon there is referring to this promise that God is making to Abram. So, 
What do you do with your fears? You tell God. You, you, if, even if that means complaining to Him, you're open with God about your fears, and you listen to what God says. He gives us these promises that help us deal with our fears. And then the last thing to consider is to believe what God promises. Believe what God promises. Now we get to verse 6 here in chapter 15. Uh, just a landmark verse here, <laughs> friends. You know, th- this is uh, uh, just a verse of enormous significance in the entire Scriptures. In fact, it's repeated three different times in the New Testament, James 2, Galatians 3, Romans 4. Easy to remember, 2, 3, 4. James 2, Galatians 3, Romans 4 repeats or falls back upon this passage, chapter 15, verse 6. So here's what happened. happens. Abram comes, or God comes, the Lord comes and speaks to Abram. Abram hears this unbelievable promise and this extraordinary statement is made here at the start of verse 6. He, that's Abram, believed the Lord. He believed it. God says, you're 85 years old, you've got a barren wife, you're going to have a child, and Abram believed. He didn't doubt, he didn't argue, he didn't rationalize. He took God at his word and believed him. And then it says that it was then counted to him as righteousness. It's counted to him as righteousness. Now, that word righteousness is not maybe a word that we use a, a whole lot. We don't talk about, you know, I really have a great friend here because he's so righteous. You know, I'm looking for a husband or wife that is righteous. You know, we, we just don't use that language a lot. But I would suggest that we think in that way in many um, perspectives. Like, for instance, whenever we say something like, nobody's perfect, we use that term a lot, that phrase, nobody's perfect. What we're really saying is nobody's righteous. Or as we evaluate our politicians, we might say character counts. But what we're really saying is righteousness counts. When you struggle with guilt, you say, I'm feeling guilty right now. What, what you're really saying is, I don't feel very righteous. I feel like I'm lacking righteousness. That's really what, what guilt is. So we might not use that term a lot, but we think in that way about righteousness. And so let me define righteousness for you here. I don't want to just assume that you even know what that means, and I think this is a good definition. It's conformity to the demands and obligations of the will of God. Simple definition of righteousness. To whatever degree you don't conform to the demands and obligations of the will of God, you are unrighteous. Now sometimes, friends we fear what we shouldn't, right? Sometimes fears are irrational. The fear of feet, it's another phobia I think I did mention. The fear of feet, the fear of the color white. Uh, you know, you probably don't need to worry about those things. You don't need to fear those things. Sometimes we fear what we shouldn't, but you know what, friends? Sometimes we don't fear what we should. Sometimes we don't fear what we should, and the thing that you ought to be most concerned about in this life is standing before God lacking righteousness. You want to know something to be afraid of? There's one. I don't know if there's a phobia term attached to that, but that's something to be concerned about, standing before God not righteous, lacking righteousness. Notice what happens here. Abram believes God, and again, it says it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice here, Abram is not doing anything. 
It doesn't say anything about any action that he took. It doesn't say anything about his moral courage. He hasn't done a thing here. Of course, he's acted beforehand, but in this case, Abram has not done anything. He is counted righteous not by his behavior, but by his belief. And as a result of his belief in what God has promised, righteousness is counted to him, or some translations will say credited to him. It's, righteousness was, was given to his account. I mean, you know what it's like. You've got a bank account, and sometimes somebody um, is going to credit your account. And so you go and you look at your balance, and it wasn't there, and then suddenly there it is. There's the figure, the amount of money that was credited to you. It was put in your account. That, that's the concept. That's the idea here. Abram believed, and righteousness was given to him. But it's not through his actions, it's through his faith. Through his belief, what he needed was freely given. And then Paul picks this up again in Romans chapter 4. We're not going to go through all the passages in the New Testament that deal with this verse, but Romans 4, Paul says this, If Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And now he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not to the one who works, no, excuse me, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Like in your bank account, there are basically two ways your account can be credited. That is, you can... Uh, get money that is a wage for work that you have done. Maybe your paycheck is automatically deposited into your account, and you look to see to make sure that money is there. That money has been credited. It's been put into your account. But in that case, it's money credited to you as a wage due for the work that you have performed. What Paul is saying here is that's not the way the gospel works. You don't get the love of God, the righteousness of God, the acceptance of God because you've worked for it. God doesn't forgive you in the way of giving a paycheck to you. That's not the way it works. Instead, so here's another way that your account can be credited, not as a wage for work done, but as a simple, free, and gracious gift. That's what Paul is saying. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, the ungodly, not the godly. We don't get the righteousness of God because we're godly enough to get it. That's paycheck talk. This is a gift. God justifies the ungodly not by working, but through faith, and that faith is counted as righteousness. Friends, that's, that's the gospel. This is probably the most misunderstood thing about Christianity. So many people laboring under this false assumption that I've got to be good enough to please God and get into heaven. If that's your fear, not being good enough, I have good news for you. There is righteousness for you to be received by faith. And this righteousness comes only through what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. Here's what Paul says later. Paul talks about being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. 
Friends, are you ready to turn from your own unrighteousness? I'm going to call you to do something here that might sound a little strange, a little weird, a little uncomfortable. You need to repent. Preachers like to say that. You need to repent of your sins, but you also need to repent of your righteousness. Whatever righteousness that you are clinging to in such a way that you think it's going to make you right before God, whatever righteousness you have placed hope in, thinking that this is going to be the thing that's going to really impress God so that He's going to forgive me and let me into heaven, whatever that righteousness is, repent of it. Turn from it. It will not save you. But there is a righteousness that will, and it's this righteousness given to us, offered to us in Jesus Christ, the one who lived faithfully and obediently to God his whole life, the one who laid down his life to pay the penalty for your sins, the one who was resurrected from the dead, and by the virtue of that is declared the victor over sin and the devil, the one who calls us now to trust him and the righteousness that he offers. Will you do that if you haven't done that now? Even if you have been a Christian for years, maybe it's something you need to be acquainted with. My standing before God does not depend on my performance. Praise God. It depends on an alien righteousness that comes from outside us, received by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is full of truth. Your word is full of grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you have done for us, Jesus, what we can't do for ourselves and have earned our righteousness for us. We thank you, we praise you, and ask that you fill our hearts with joy and gladness that this righteousness would humble us before you, but also give us the motivation, the enthusiasm, and the power now to give ourselves fully to you in all our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.